Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley and Mary McCambridge today, and I'm just happy to have you join us for season three. Mary, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's awesome to have you. Mary is a grief, grief authority and executive coach, a speaker and award-winning author of several works in her field. She established her personal site, marymac.info, griefauthority.com, the Foundation for Giving Children, Inc., and her weekly podcast. Cast the Mary Mac Show and the Mary Mac Store, offering products and gifts for the bereaved. Her show is recognized among the ten best podcasts on grief and bereavement by several organizations and heard in over eighty countries, and is in the top five percent of podcasts globally. So I'm just thrilled to have you here, all the way from Central Florida. Yes, sunny is Central it- Florida today. Yes. Yes. Is it hot in sunny central Florida? It is. It's over 80 today. And it's been in the 90s already, which is uh, a little early, but that's okay. And we're only next week, we start with the hurricane season. So this should be interesting. Oh, yeah. So are you like (laughs) inland or are you more towards the coast? I'm in central Florida north about 45 minutes north of Orlando. Okay. And it, ta- it takes us another 45 minutes to go uh, out to the beach, uh, uh, the Atlantic, Atlantic, okay. Beach, <laughs> Atlantic okay. coast. Well, my sister used to live in Orlando and she used to tell me that my kids wanted to come and live with her. And I used to tell her that's because you told them that Mickey Mouse lives on your street. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is not fair. <laughs> So, Mary, um, you know, you write about um, and talk about bereavement and um, grief. Tell me a little bit about where that all stems from and how you got into that field. When I was very young, I was uh, early in high school, uh, a classmate of ours was killed by a drunk driver. And then two years later, one of my first crushes you know, my first loves when I was like, I was like 12 and he was like 15 (laughs) and you knew that wasn't going anywhere right? at that, at that point. But when he got older, he and his family moved to Florida and he was pulling out of his driveway and a drunk driver just plowed right into him broadside. And he was killed. He was only like 18, 19. Mm. And that was the beginning. And then as time went on, I lost other um, relatives. I lost my grandfather when I was in my graduate school exams one year. Um, but the clincher for us, the one that was the most impactful, was when my 11-year-old stepdaughter was murdered. Mm-hmm. And that that was many, many decades ago. And it took us 18 years to solve that crime, which really had a horrible effect on our marriage. 
Um, we were married for almost 20 years, my husband at the time, her father. And the whole marriage was centered around finding who killed her. So it was a very difficult time in my life. Uh, worked a lot with homicide detectives, district attorneys. Um, we tried everything we could to get the word out, not let her memory uh, be lost, not let the case be lost in the shuffle. And finally, in 2002, um, we got a call because they had our original detective retired and new eyes were put on the case. And within a matter of weeks, they were very convinced they knew who it was. And that person was um, the, one of the top three people. And we could never prove it. And his mother sent him out to California to get him out of the area um, to basically cloister him. But ultimately, he was molesting his own 14-year-old daughter. And they were able to take him in. The LAPD took him in and charged him and connected with our detectives on Long Island, New York, who went and interviewed him. And he said, why did you take so long? Like he knew. He knew Ew. that he would be caught at some point, you know? Oh, my and goodness. He had been um, beating up. He had been abusing um, several girlfriends over all those years. And none of them would testify because they were so frightened of him because he said, if you tell anybody that I killed my cousin, which she wasn't, but he said that to them, um, that I will, I'll kill you too. So none of them wanted to come forward. But once they heard that he was locked down, they all said, fine, I'll testify. And so when we finally got into a courtroom a year and a half later, it took us two weeks to find a jury because everyone on Long Island had known about it. It was very publicized. And another four weeks from the beginning of February to the last day of February, four full weeks in court. And we finally got a conviction. And the problem was, is that at the time in New York state law, he was a juvenile when he killed her. So it isn't when you are caught, it's when you did the crime. So he was 15 at the time. And he was about 33, I think, when they caught him. So he was, the maximum he could get was nine to life. And so he was tried as an adult, but, but sentenced as a juvenile, mm. which is very, is very weird, but that's just the way the law is in New York. And that was really the impetus for me to get involved with this because I didn't know you know, all the things I needed to know about how to deal with a murder in my life, right? I went to the library. I asked the uh, reference librarian, are there any books on this? And she didn't know. Right. And so I went to the stacks. I pulled everything down about bereavement that I could. I circled them around me and I started to go through every single one to try to find some sort of sense of help. And in the back of a, a book called The Bereaved Parent, there were contact people out on Long Island who had gone through this as well. Their son was killed. And we found ourselves a month after Angela was killed, uh, going to their house. Their name was Barbara and Sid Davis. And we, along with four other couples, sat in a square in their living room and started to pour our heart out about everything that had happened. And it was 
at that, that moment that we had a new family because our own family had no idea what we were going through, Sure, you know, and how could they, I mean, and they didn't know how to console us and they tried to snap us back into shape. <laughs> right. And it doesn't work that way. No, you know, it just no. doesn't work that way. And, and over time I, wrote the newsletter for the Long Island chapter of Parents and Other Children. We went to different conferences and helped them set them up, national conferences. We spoke at national conferences about unsolved murder. And we also started the first chapter of Parents and Other Children in New York City because people were coming from like 80 miles away to be with us on a Friday night for three hours because there was nothing there and no one could understand them. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So what was his sentence ultimately? Nine to life. Nine to life. Okay. So Mm -hmm. that was his sentence. So is he still incarcerated? He is. is. And each January, his, um, the parole board, you know, lines him up and decides whether he's fit to come out or not. And we've been very fortunate because we had such a network. And my former husband does a lot of work in reaching out to our friends and all over the country who we've known and ask them to write letters to the, to the parole board to keep him in. And we've been very fortunate. He's still there. Mm. So that was back in 2004. He was mm. sentenced. And so he's been in there now 16, 18 years. Okay. Okay. 18, and it keeps going. So he got double the sentence originally because when you have life at the end in New York, like nine to life, you can stay up to life if the parole board wants it. So yeah, that's a good, okay. that's a good thing. That's a really okay. good thing. Well, this interview is going to air in November, Um, but you and I were talking just previously that um, there are some big things happening in our world right now, and the biggest in this nation is um, the recent shooting yesterday of um, over a dozen, I think it's now 19 students and a couple of adults um, at a school, and I just wondered what... um, what do you say to parents? What do you say to parents that have lost a child that has been murdered and in such, I mean, it's always heinous, but in such extreme circumstances? Yes. Unfortunately, there are never going to be the right words. You can say how sorrowful you feel for what they're going through, how sorry you are that this has happened. But mostly, I always say, just be with the person. Just sit with them, hold them, hug them, hold their hand, just be there for them. They just need your presence. They need your presence more than anything Mm -hmm. because they are in, in their mind. Their mind is just racing. They cannot believe that this has happened. There are no manuals that say when your child is murdered, this is what you do because Nobody knows. Everybody has a different way of dealing with the shock that goes along with such a violent act. Mm-hmm. Because you, you're you never brought up. I mean, if you're brought up well, nobody ever talks about that you would harm another person 
ever. You are always going to be good to other people. You never want to feel that something so horrendous could ever happen in your family. So these individuals right now are in utter and complete shock. They, you could be walking in circles and you don't even know you're walking in circles. You could be sitting down in a chair and your body is rocking back and forth, like, you know, back and forth forward. And you're con- you're trying to console yourself because mm-hmm. this is beyond you. Okay. The shock is going to last for a very long time. And quite frankly, you want it to because that bubble that they're living in right now is safe. It's the only thing that keeps their mind sane. Because in about a year, it's going to start to dissipate. And when that happens, they're going to know this is real. She's not coming back. He's not coming back. I can't walk into their their room and they'll be sitting there jumping around reading their books playing with games they aren't going to be doing that Mm. and so that that uh complete and utter utter shock is going to be with them for a long time and unfortunately everyone in their family who is also dealing with this is going to have their own way of dealing with it And that's where it's very difficult because the father is going to look at this differently and react differently than the mother and the child, the other children in the family who usually are kind of put on the back burner because we say, oh, they're resilient. They'll be just fine. Let's just get them back out to school and in their routine and they'll be fine. Well, that's not true. Okay. They're grieving as much as you are and All of you in the family have to slowly come together and find out what the other ones need and for what time and how long and reach out to the other families to get their needs met. Somebody should go grocery shopping. Somebody should make meals on a regular basis and not just the first week. I'm talking long term. Right. Okay. Who's going to come in and do the laundry for the family once a week? Can it be scheduled with all their friends? I mean, there's so many little nuances because they're going to be in such depression, such utter shock and just fear, fear for their other kids, you know, fear for the world that it's become. Mm-hmm. And that unfortunately is another entire topic, isn't it? Well, you know, I think what you're what you're saying is that, you know, grief is palpable and real, but it also morphs and and has seasons and and different yes. stages of it and everybody deals with each of those stages differently, right? Absolutely. And um the stages of grief and I even have um episodes on the stages of grief and the myths surrounding grief on my podcast, The Mary Mack Show. And those are two uh, episodes that I would encourage everyone to listen to, especially my first episode, which is The Welcome, the first one I did. And we've been doing this now since December of 2019. And little did we know that COVID was going to kick in like three months later. So I was glad about that so that at least I could give people the information and understanding they needed going through COVID. But the thing is, is that 
Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a nurse from England, and she came over here and brought the hospice movement, which was phenomenal and needed. But everyone thinks that the stages of grief that she gave us are for the bereaved, and that's not true. The stages she gave us are for people who are actually dying. Mm -hmm. That's what those stages were for. So now if you're dying, those stages may go in the order she projects. But I have to tell you that from my experience and almost everyone I've ever known who have gone through severe death um, loss, they don't go in order. They'll never go in order because everyone's different and everyone has their own pace. And you may be doing just fine today and it's six months later and you think you got a grip on this. And then all of a sudden that protective bubble starts to burst and leak. And now all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, oh my God, this is very real. I can't see them anymore. I can't talk to them anymore. I can't go anywhere. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? Like say for a widow, I've spoken to widows who have said to me, I don't even have the courage to go to dinner by myself anywhere. I mean, I'm frightened to just go to dinner alone because I might sit there and break down in a restaurant and I can't have that. So there are so many little nuances of grief that come up. You walk into, you're going to go Christmas shopping. I remember the day we went into the store for the first year after Angelo was killed and we're walking I look off to the side and there's all the girls, the little girls area, you know, and I'm like, holy Moses, I'm never going to need to buy anything in there again. Mm. You know, like those are the thoughts that run through your head and it just brace. You have to brace yourself, you know, because you're like, holy crap. (laughs) But if there's no, there's no roadmap, the unknown becomes not only unfamiliar, but very scary. And, um, Does, do you think there is a difference in how people deal with grief or are able to handle grief when they lose a child versus losing an adult? It all depends on the relationship. Obviously, when you lose your own child, the relationship is, you know, of great magnitude. But when it comes, comes to an adult, say, for instance, it's not a relative, say, for instance, it's uh, the gal down the block who you've been friends with since you were a child. Okay. Now she doesn't have the perfect label, right? What do we call her? Okay. She's my neighbor. She's my good friend. She's whatever. But the relationship you have with that woman that you see almost every day, you help each other with life. You listen to each other when there's problems. You raise your kids together. You go to soccer practice with his, her children and your children. That death, if she dies, maybe there's a car crash and she dies, leaving all those little ones she has and her husband. Okay, you are going to be more impacted by her death than some cousin of yours who lives 3000 miles away, who you've seen maybe three or four times. Right. Okay. Or even a grandfather. Okay. Who you've had very little interaction with or another estranged relative. They have the right label. Okay. They're a grandfather. They're my cousin. They're my aunt. They're whatever. But I have no relationship with them. They don't really care about me. 
So it's the emotional proximity more than it is the label of family. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the relation. I always say it's the relationship, not the title. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Not the title. Because you, you, um, people, you know, don't understand why you would grieve more for your, you know, neighbor down the block than you would for your grandfather and, you know, Mm -hmm. 3000 miles away and why you wouldn't necessarily think I have to go to that funeral. No, because it's not, it's not affecting you the same way. What do you think, how do you have, um, help parents to feel safe again, sending children to school, sending them out into public after something horrific like this? How do those parents even begin to let their children out of the house again? It's going to take a while. It's just going to take a while because they don't want to have them out of their sight. And quite frankly, the children don't want their parents out of their sight. Mm -hmm. Because whether you're grieving for, like, say, the children that have survived, they see what their parents are going through after the death of their sibling, for instance, like in Texas, what we were talking about. And they see the overwhelming, you know, distraught, how overwhelmingly distraught they are and how they can't function and how they're laying in bed under the covers and they're staying there. And all these other people who they may or may not know are coming into the house to help. And they're, and they're like, what is going on here? Right. Life is chaotic. Exactly. And even the youngest babies, even the youngest babies will start to cry more, react more because they know instinctively something's not right here. Right. And, and as the child gets a little bit older, they have, they will know more, they will sense more, they will ask more questions. Okay. And, you know, they always say, oh, the grief counselors will be here right away to work with the parents and the children. But the problem is, is most of those kids surviving students are going to be at home. They're going to be home. Right. Right. They, They don't really need the counselors right now. Uh-huh. Sure, they need a little consoling and they need to know that somebody's there for them for the short term. But what they really need is the long term. So does, are there crisis counselors available to them later? I don't think so, because in the in this, you know, the the lives of um, teachers, lives of administ- lives of administrators, you know, in their head, they're like, well, I did my duty. Right. I, I did what I could do. That's right. I did my duty in the beginning. And uh, then when all the media goes away, then everything else goes away. And that's the sad part about it. Right. You know, and years ago, to just talk a little bit about mental health, years ago, um, when you had an insurance policy in your company, for instance, it offered mental health services. You were allowed to go to so many uh, sessions with a counselor in a year. Right. Okay? Sometimes you had to pay 50% of that counseling. Okay? But there was still some coverage. It was available. Right. Exactly. And now there's nothing. Um, the insurance companies 
over the years just took it all away. There's no way to get mental health services. Okay. Most, I wouldn't say most, but there's a significant amount of people in our country who can't afford insurance at all, regardless of whether they have an ACA or not. You can't afford it. I mean, I remember uh, there was a point when I was in New York and I wanted to get an insurance policy, individual, not with a company, you know, not through my company. They wanted, Aetna wanted to charge $1,200 a month. I wasn't even paying that for rent. Okay. And it had no benefits whatsoever because the premium and the uh, deductibles. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) The deductibles were in the thousands. So basically you're telling me you want me to pay $1,200 a month for coverage and I can't use it until I come up with five to $10,000 in deductible. Now, exactly how is that going to help me? It isn't. Right. Unless it's something completely catastrophic, it's not going to help you. Exactly. Right. Well, in your, on your website, you have um, gifts and things that um, help families um, can you describe that a little bit to me? Okay. So I have an ebook on griefauthority.com. It's also on marymac.info and it's called 21 things you need to know or you must know about the grieving process. And you can pick that up for free and it, you can download it immediately. It'll come to your inbox. And the reason that I wrote that is because it's not just for people who are actually grieving. It's also for people who are trying to help someone who is grieving. And that's very important because you don't want to do harm. You only want to help. Right. And if you have a better understanding about what they are going through, then it will be easier for you to help them and help them for the long term. Right, right. And so I encourage everyone who's listening to please go get that that um, that ebook. It's not very long, and you could read it in one sitting. And the other thing I have is also on griefauthority.com. And there are three of my, what I consider to be the most important books I've written so far. One book is to help you learn how to deal with the grieving process. One book is to help your children. And the other, the last book is to help at holiday time, learn how to deal with the holidays. Mm. So my, my signature book is called Understanding Your Grieving Heart After a Loved One's Death, and then How to Help a Grieving Child and the Holiday Grief. And I, I just want so much for people to pick those up. They're all downloadable. It's all digital. And the reason I created Grief Authority is because as we move forward in this chaotic world, there's a very good chance that with supply chain problems, we're not going to be able to deliver a paper book to you Mm -hmm. or a hard-covered book to you because timber might not be, you know, available paper might not be available. And even if it is, it might take weeks, even months, if there are trucks that can deliver it to you. Plus the expense. Yeah. Okay. So my thinking is long-term, we really need to have everything online digitally. And when you download it, you can download it right into your computer 
or you can go into my portal and read it there. But the point being is to download it in your computer is very important because what happens if internet goes down? Right. Okay. What if we get to the place where the different governments are trying to control us in a way that they shut the internet off? I think like that. Yeah. You know, there's too many possibilities of trying to instill fear into us, trying to exert control over us. And we have to prepare ourselves for things like that. So if you have those books downloaded into your personal computer, as long as we have electricity, yeah, you can read them and have them. They're yours to help well, we your will, family. We will put that information about Grief Authority and about Mary Max show and all that in our show notes. Um, I just think Thank this you. is a really timely conversation. Um as I've kind of wrestled with my own emotion over this, I don't have school-age children anymore, but I think about my grandchildren and I think about, you know, and I think everybody has some kind of a touch point where they think if I were there, if this was my situation, what would I do or right. how could I help? And so I think this has been a really helpful conversation. So um, we will put all that in our show notes. Mary, thank you so much for um, just sharing your wisdom and your insight that has been um, tough gained, but is um, been turned into something that is really beneficial to, to so many people. So I thank you for that. You're most welcome. Thank you for inviting me. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at jill at jillreilly.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.